The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we have a chance to sing a song just now about the glorious truth of the rugged cross that you have cleansed us. You have set us free. A marvelous truth. And we have before us a passage that gives us chance now to think about what you've been doing, what you've been saying throughout all of the ages. We'll see even that in, in the ancient land of Egypt long ago you were proclaiming the cross then. We'll see you proclaim the cross in Jerusalem thousands of years ago, and we'll this morning think about the cross here in Salt Lake in this year. All across time, you have had one message for us, Christ crucified. The one word from God the message by which we are cleansed, set free. It is a glorious thing, and will you help us to understand it some this morning, Lord, to be refreshed, renewed, built by it. Will you set free some people today? Maybe for the first time, will you save? And will you, for those who are your people here already, will you set us free in new and fresh ways, free us to live, to walk with you in hope and in joy. Will you proclaim to us this cross this morning? Will you build us up and will you change us and will you honor the name of Jesus in it? Spirit of God, have your way here in this room. Would you clear away distraction? Would you, would you clear away weight that may rest on us, Satan? would love for us to miss the point, would love for us to have dull hearts and stopped up ears and miss this and fall asleep and daydream, God forbid. Clear away all distraction and make the word clear that the cross may shine, that your people may be built up in faith, hope, and love to your honor, for our good and for the good of the nations among whom we live and to whom we have this message to proclaim as you have always. This message of the cross. Help us to understand it this morning. Build your church. Honor Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 22. We've been following along as Luke recounts for us some of the conversations and events of Jesus' last week in Jerusalem leading up to the cross. Numerous confrontations with hostile leaders. Back and forth it's gone for a few days in the temple until the leaders finally gave up and decided to try some other method of destroying Jesus. So they are still after him. But in the meantime... Jesus still has some things he intends to teach his disciples, like what we looked at last week. Instruction about the coming future, given so as to help us live in it. Particularly important because it's not going to be what's expected. His disciples there that he's talking to last week, they think deliverance is coming in full right away, but we know we await the fullness of that yet still. And while we do, we must take care, as Charlie already prayed, to watch ourselves. That's Jesus' point here. That's where all of that concludes with this, this warning, this exhortation to watch ourselves. Looking at what Jesus has said would happen, some of which we then can see did happen, we are to look at that and see there's a trustworthy God who's in charge of this, who says things and they happen. So then I can believe that what he says will happen, will happen. His trustworthiness is established, and so I can believe and live in faith and in hope that what he said will happen is going to come. Deliverance is going to come, 
And therefore, in faith and in hope, I can live now watching myself, lest I be led astray from this, from this faithful following of Jesus and into the ways of the world and, and ruin my life and miss him. That's what Jesus was laying out last week. And now in chapter 22, we pick up once again with the plotting of the leaders as the story takes a decisive turn. Up to this point, if you've been reading along in Luke, if you were reading it for the first time, you'd think that the constant mention of the crowds here, numerous passages, numerous places mention him speaking to the crowds, him encountering the crowds, him coming into the city with massive crowds greeting him. You'd think that the constant mention of the crowds here in the city is because of Jesus. Crowds always follow Jesus around. They've been tracking with him all throughout Judea. So here in Jerusalem, more the same, right? Well, now Luke tells us in beautiful storytelling. Oh, and by the way, it's Passover. <laughs> That's why the city is jam-packed full of people. Most of the male population of the nation is here. That's why the leaders are afraid of the crowds, because most of the male population of the nation is here. That's why Jesus is here, to celebrate the Passover. Oh, of course, exactly, but not exactly, not exactly how we think of it or how we're expecting. Really, we could say Jesus is here to be the Passover and to prepare the way for its final great fulfillment. That's what we're going to look at today as we read about two different preparations of a Passover sacrifice and then hear Jesus' explanation of how the two fit together. So let me read verses 1 to 23 of Luke chapter 22 and then draw out a few of the details, especially from the first half of the passage before making two Observations. Luke 22, beginning in verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve, he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you've entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Luke 22. Verse 1 gives us the setting of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called Passover. And technically the feast was a week-long celebration following immediately the very next day after the Passover. But usually it was viewed as, as one combined event remembering and celebrating how God had delivered his people Israel out of bondage in Egypt long ago. You could read about this beginning in Exodus chapter 11. Maybe you're familiar with the story. Nine plagues were announced and one by one inflicted on Pharaoh and Egypt because God had determined that now's the time when his people would be set free as captives would be brought out of Egypt and to the promised land of rest. And he's going to use these plagues to pass judgment on wicked Egypt and all of its false idols, its false gods. So at the same time, he intends to complete the judgment while also liberating his people. And to do that, finally, he announced the tenth plague, the killing of the firstborn. A heavy blow of judgment. Every firstborn male person and animal to be killed by God. A heavy blow of judgment with one single sure way of escape. God told his people to kill a firstborn male lamb instead. For each household, and to place its blood on the door frame of the house, on the top of the door frame and on both sides, to put the blood on the door frame of the house, on that door then shut, and then to stay behind the door in the house. And when the angel of the Lord came upon the land of Egypt that night to kill in judgment, he would come, see the blood and anyone behind such blood, behind that door shielded by the blood of the dead lamb would be passed over. That house would be passed over and all in it would live. And the next day, they would leave and walk on to freedom with God. That's the unleavened bread part. The Passover followed by the unleavened bread, bread made without yeast. So thinking we don't have time to let it rise, so we're going to eat the bread without yeast, unleavened bread, to leave quickly. Passover and unleavened bread. God said that, and then it happened, just like he said, Egypt was judged, and those under the blood of the Lamb were passed over and saved out of bondage to Egypt and into the servanthood of this good God under his covenant, the old covenant of Moses that followed. Every year, they were told, look back, celebrate, remember, rejoice in God's deliverance. And it's that time again, it's, it's Passover. And so verse 2, the chief priests and scribes were looking around trying to figure out how to slaughter Jesus. Do you get the foreshadowing there? It's Passover. How can we kill Jesus? Verses 3 to 6 then reveal how they found that answer. Judas, one of the 12 closest disciples, he approached the leaders with a proposition, perhaps because he'd sensed that Jesus was not going to bring about political deliverance. Perhaps he was just in it for the money. It says he didn't agree to do it until after they agreed to pay him. So maybe money was the root of this evil. But whatever the, the human reason behind it, there is another clear, notable force at work here. Satan himself. There, there is always, we, we know, there's, there is a spiritual world all around us at all times. There is a demonic spiritual world all around us. But Satan understands. Satan is a real being, but he is not omnipresent. He is a being in one place at one time. And here, he is sure to be present in Judas. Earlier, Back in chapter 4, we read about how Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, went out into the wilderness to confront Satan himself. And Satan attempted to tempt him and to lead him astray into disobedience and to destroy him and failed. And then we read in chapter 3, verse 13, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. 
Here is an opportune time. Judas, for some reason, is dissatisfied, and Satan himself enters into Judas and takes control of Judas. Judas isn't a Christian, we know that. So he can enter into him and possess him, and he does that to assure that he gets done what he is about getting done, destroying Jesus. While, that's going on, while in the meantime, all over the city people are preparing for Passover. Jesus and his disciples too. And we see in verses 7 to 13 those details, details which are told to us again so that we see Jesus is in complete control of everything that happens. Not just in complete control of all the dialogue, all the back and forth arguing, but like we saw earlier with him entering into the city to find the donkey, here we see it again. He knows everything. You're going to come into the city. You're going to run into a guy who's carrying a water jar who happens to work for another guy who's already expecting me and has a room ready. That's where you're going. Go, Peter and John. And it happened just as he told them it would. They went there, and they prepared the Passover. It's Thursday this week. And in the afternoon, the lambs were all slaughtered, one for each household, blessed then at the temple, brought back to the home, the table laid out, wine and bread and meat, bitter herbs, an ordinary Passover meal, which is not described for us in detail here. Because the Passover meal itself and those details are not the point. The Passover is the point. And God has made certain that Luke records for us what Jesus said is important about the Passover. There are lots of other things in this meal which we're not going to talk about and aren't the point. Luke's brought out what Jesus brought out, and so that's where we're going to be looking now, to make two observations from what Jesus drew out of the Passover, its meaning and its fulfillment. Two observations, here's the first. The substitutionary sacrifice of the Son was always God's saving plan. The substitutionary sacrifice of the Son was always God's saving plan. Verses 19 and 20 are the most familiar verses from this passage because of the verses used with the two elements in, in our communion celebration, in our, in our what we call the Lord's table. He took bread, gave thanks, as was part of the ritual of the meal. He took bread, thanked God, and then broke it. Don't when you think of bread here, don't think of like a big loaf of wonder bread. This is unleavened bread, so it didn't rise. So think more like a, a, a large cracker, if you will. Broken. This is my body, which using common sense, we must understand to be a metaphorical statement. His hand, his arm, his body is right there in front of them, distinct from the bread itself. And the bread did not in any way actually become his hand or his arm or his body. This is not literal. They clearly understood a metaphor. Clearly. This is my body which is given for you. The whole supper is built on metaphor. He's just changing the metaphor. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Not the lamb, not the Passover in the past. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this, eat this, remember me. And likewise the cup, verse 20. This cup that is poured out for you, it is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Again, metaphor, there is no literal blood in the cup, and they know that. The wine did not become blood that tasted like wine. It's a metaphor. It's not literal. 
But understanding the metaphors, then we need to step inside of them and realize what is he saying? What is Jesus getting at? It's the Lord's table. He's the host. And he's laying something in front of his people there and and saying something to them. And what's he saying? He's saying, here we are eating a meal that is commanded by God, that's at this festival ordered by God to remind us each year of the great Passover in the past, to remind us of how our ancestors killed a firstborn male lamb, broke its body, not its bones, its body, shed its blood, drained the blood out of this animal and put it on their doors so that God's judgment would pass over them. The lamb died for them in their place. You can imagine yourself, imagine yourself as the oldest son in that house looking at the lamb. They they acquired this lamb and brought it into the house so that it lived among them for a couple days. And he's he's heard the instruction and he's there thinking, it is this sacrificial lamb or me tomorrow night. One or the other of us tomorrow night. One of us is going to die. One or the other. Very clear, very graphic. He can touch it. He can smell it. He can see it. He knows this animal, and it's one or the other of us. And everybody in the household knows it's brother or him. It's son or that one. One or the other. And they sacrifice the lamb, you recall. And put the blood on the door, and God's wrath passed over. And the the wrath fell on the lamb instead and shielded those of us who were behind it, and we lived. We now, brethren, says Jesus, we eat this meal because of that Passover. But that Passover, I tell you, actually is about what you are going to need to remember about tomorrow. We're here tonight remembering what happened back there, but I tell you that 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 happened back there is actually about what you are going to need to remember about tomorrow. What's going on? What's going to happen tomorrow? My body broken for you. My blood poured out for you. understand this? God saved his people back from Egypt. God Almighty could have done absolutely anything he wanted to do to save his people out of Egypt. He could have wiped out every Egyptian. He could have just transported them out. He could have made them all blind. He could have done anything, absolutely anything he wanted to do, but he chose this way with the Passover lamb because he wanted to, to preach a message back then about what's going to happen tomorrow. When the body of Jesus is broken and the blood of Jesus is poured out to take God's killing judgment on that firstborn male, this great son, so as to shield all of you who hide behind my body and my blood, he says. That was always God's plan. The cross was planned before the exodus, you see. The Passover was a model of the great salvation of God yet to come, a substitutionary sacrifice in which one dies for another, in which one dies for others. Do you see that in the Passover itself? That one or me, it's, it's one or the other, a substitutionary exchange. But it's also here in Jesus' explanation. This is very important that we emphasize this because there are always some people in the church, let alone outside the church, there are always some people who attempt to redefine the significance of the cross and attempt then to re-explain the whole gospel in a different way based very often on a minor point in the cross changed and made to be the point. An example. You will find people teaching in Christian circles that the point of the cross is to display the love of God. 
Does the cross display the love of God? Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. But it's only the love of God because of its real purpose. Its real purpose is to save by means of substitutionary death. The slain lamb, the slain son, substituted in, in place of me, so that I won't die. You see that? My body, which is given for you, for my blood poured out for you, for, on behalf of, in the place of you who trust him, given, poured out, by whom? Glory. Glory. By God himself. Given by God himself, poured out by God himself. We, you, did not provide him. We did not rummage around to find something to offer up to God. Here, look, so that then his wrath would pass over us and we would be safe. May God emphasize to you, I, I, I know I'm, I'm talking to a bunch of people who understand this, but may God press it into you to emphasize this to you. God himself Gave God himself poured out this provided lamb, this provided sacrifice. And may he use that to grab hold of and pull up by the roots out of your heart. I'm, t- I'm speaking to everybody here, Christian, non-Christian alike. To pull up out of your heart that lingering tendency, that natural human bent. To turn and look for something in me, something that I do, something that I provide. To say to God, here, somehow, some way, I have done something to make you in some way pleased with me and happy with me, and to pass over me with your anger, and instead to put on me your, your favor. Of course, I am talking about all the false religions in the world. That's how every other religion except biblical Christianity works. Present to God your obedience, your behavior, your goodness, your morality, your performance of certain religious rituals. Present those to God. He will be pleased, and his anger will pass over you. That's how every other false religion works. But, but here's the, the really good news. that if, if I were to say that to a Christian, you would all say, no, of course not. But brothers and sisters, so consistently we live beneath that. You can notice it. You can notice it. that This is kind of how your heart functions sometimes. You can notice it when you find yourself saying, God... I've been walking with you all these years. I've been trying to read my Bible and do the right thing, and you gave me still this. The, the layered belief there is, I, I should get better. I deserve something else because I have done. And we feel kind of bitter sometimes, a little bit confused and frustrated. I thought, I walk with you, I follow you, I obey you, I, I do the best to, to love my spouse or honor my spouse and raise my kids to follow, and I work hard at work, and therefore then my marriage works out and a stable income and I'm healthy, and I still got cancer and she's still left. What? That ain't right. You notice that. If, if you see the frustration in you, the confusion in you, I, I thought... I did, and you should. Or you feel the burden. Not officially, but tragically, this is often where we Christians live. We live underneath of something, thinking I am supposed to, I have to do, I have to follow, I have to walk, I have to obey, I have to read, I have to pray. And the reason things aren't working out for me is because I didn't. 
or I kind of have a feeling, a suspicion that God's frowning on me. God's afflicting me in some way. God has, has left me in some way because I have failed to uphold my end of the bargain. If you ask such a Christian, and I would suggest this is all of us at different times, if you would ask such a Christian, so you're saying that you earn God's favor? No. Sort of, I guess. Sort of. May God reach in and grab and yank out by the roots this tendency in us to rummage around and try to find something to hold up to him and say, look, here, now will you please pass your anger over and away from me and instead deliver to me blessing because look, here, we do not provide the satisfying sacrifice. Not 10% of it, not 5% of it, not 1% of it. God gave, God poured out. He provides the lamb willingly and with resolve. This is why Jesus came. So that God's wrath could be rightly removed from us, could pass over and be gone. He provides it, we don't. And he gives it, it's not taken from him. For some time, we have seen Jesus, moving through Luke here, we've seen Jesus mention or allude to or hint out, hint at or outright declare even that he's about to die in Jerusalem at the hands of wicked men. Chapter 18, verse 33 is perhaps the most explicit recent mention. He says, the Son of Man will be mocked shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. That's pretty clear. As is the parable of the wicked tenants in chapter 20. In a, in a different way, Jesus is, is not outright declaring. He's telling a story, a parable. It's the, the tenants of a vineyard reject the messenger sent from God, and then finally God sends his son, and they see the son, and they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus said that about himself too. So he's been talking about how he's going to be killed for some time, but we could read all that and think that it will be the scheming and working of wicked men and of wicked men alone that brings about his death. It's Satan and Judas and the leaders. We just saw the plan hatched. But his life is not taken from him. It is given willingly and with resolve. Just like it was God's plan and instruction and provision to put those lambs and their blood in the place of his people here too, it is God's plan and provision that God's great lamb be placed in the place of his people. Verse 22, Jesus is talking about Judas's woeful state. And he says there, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to Judas. Determined by God. It was always the plan of God to save us. It was always the plan of God. The plan of God to save us by substitution. The death of another lamb in our place so that all who hide behind this broken body and poured out blood can live. Look at this message preached in Egypt and in Jerusalem, and here now, look at it and behold in it the marvelous, glorious grace of God. The mercy of God. Are you hidden behind this blood? 
Do you see in the story of the Passover? Do you hear in the cries of every other family outside of those homes? In the house of the Pharaoh himself, do you hear in the cries of those people? Do you see in the story that there is no other way to live? God gives this and God offers it and God pours it out. God sets it right in front of you. But he also wants to be extremely clear. This is not an option. This is the option. One or the other. There is nothing that is more important. There is nothing that is more hopeful either. Sometimes we get bent sideways when we see God be very, very, very pushy about his either-or options. But do you see, don't, don't get bent sideways, but see in it the hope, because the either is, is terrible. The or is incredibly hopeful. It promises you life. Those ones behind the door lived. They really did. They really did live. You really will find life in Christ. Are you hidden in the blood? Behind the door, shielded with the death of the Lamb. You must be. You must take and eat, take and drink this Christ, which is again a metaphor, but all it's saying is that you must take him into you. You must receive him in, not just intellectually understand him externally, but receive him volitionally, receive him trustingly into your heart to depend on him, to trust in him alone. Behold the kindness and the mercy of God. Be, be drawn to him and marvel at him again. Christian, he has set you free. Marvel at him again. He provided it. and You are free. There's more to marvel at because of what the freedom is for, what it's about. And that gets us to the second point. This sacrifice is given to get us home into joyful communion with God. This sacrifice is given to get us home into joyful communion with God. The original Passover contained in it, as is often the case, simultaneously the judgment of Egypt and the deliverance of God's people. So he's, he's acting to do both, but the liberty part is, is final and decisive and purposeful. The liberty, the freedom, is not an end in itself. It has a, it has a goal. He didn't just, so to speak, un unlock a jail cell, open the door, and then walk away and, and let them just come out and do as they pleased. He unlocked the door, grabbed him by the arm, and said, come on, let's go. Where? Home. He takes them in hand. They're, they're set free from one bondage, but they're still bound. He's got them. And we're going somewhere. He takes them into covenant servanthood with God, who would then take them to the land flowing with milk and honey, the place promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And there, God would be their God, and he would, they would be his people. They would dwell in that place at perfect peace together forever. That's what the Passover lamb was for. So that God's wrath would pass over them and bring them out free. Bring them out free to him, with him, there. The whole thing. To get them out of bondage and into communion, covenant relationship with him. All of that is a model. A type, a predictive model about what God is doing in giving this great Passover sacrifice, Jesus, to us. 
to free us from bondage and to fasten us to himself and get us into, get us to something. This is what Jesus is getting at in verses 15 to 18. Think about what he's saying there. Look at those verses we walked through. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Earnestly desired. Greatly, strongly desired to sit with them and enjoy this celebration feast of God's past salvation work while laying out for them and predicting God's coming salvation work. The work that's coming up tomorrow, but then the work that will be finished finally and fully when he comes again. To fellowship with with them there at that table and to communicate all of this It's a special last supper for him. Last, for, here's why, for I tell you I will not eat it, the Passover, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He eats the Passover feast with them now, but not again. Not until what the Passover is about is completed, is fulfilled in the kingdom. I eat now, but I'm going to wait until it's fulfilled. And then verse 17, another cup. Here, share this, for I tell you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. To put those two things together, those two mentions of the kingdom of God, forward-looking, when the kingdom of God comes. Now, of course, in one sense, as Jesus has already said, if the king's present, the kingdom's present. I mean, arguing with the Pharisees, he talked about how the kingdom is already here, but we know that he's going to heaven where he will be enthroned and begin his reign, and then he's going to come back and bring the kingdom in all of its fullness. That's the point that he's referring to. When the kingdom of God comes in fullness, then this Passover, what it's about, will be completed, will be fulfilled. You, my people, will be set free into the fullness of the covenant promises, into the fullness of the kingdom at that point. And then, then we will feast. Here in this, the heart of Jesus. Then we will eat. Then we will drink the fruit of the vine. A celebration language, wine to make glad the heart of man. Like every celebration feast recalls and delights in something, we will then at that point, we will eat and celebrate and remember how I saved you all. We will sit around the table and recall my sacrifice, how I saved you all, how I freed you all, how I cleansed you all, how I protected you all, how I kept you all from wandering and straying, and I brought you all home safely into this kingdom, to this table. We will all sit there then at that time, and we will celebrate. But until then, how can I feast? How can I drink in celebration? My people are not yet here. My family's not here. How can I sit at the table alone and rejoice? I cannot, so I will not. I will not eat and I will not drink, but I will wait for you. I will wait and I will watch. I will save you. I will keep you. I will protect you. And I will come get you and I will bring you in. And then we will party. But not until then. But not until then. Do you hear in this the heart of God expressed in Jesus He cannot be happy, fully happy. Now, now God God is indeed happy. But he cannot be happy until his people, until his children, until his family is gathered around him, home, safe, with, together. And then at that point, that's when the Passover's point will be finished, will be fulfilled. Then we'll eat and then we'll drink, but not till then. That's what God promises to accomplish for us. Covenants to accomplish for us. It is a sure and great hope. Remember it every time we take the communion cup in hand. 
We partake of the Lord's table remembering that because of what He has done, there is another feast coming. Remembering that while we partake of this, He waits to partake of this with us. He waits for us whom He loves, whom He covered with His blood, and He waits for all of us to join Him there. And then what He has promised will be accomplished, completed for us. That's the heart of the new covenant. A covenant that He made with us. A new deal, a new arrangement, a solemn promise. Verse 20, He says, This cup, the cup of the new covenant, a covenant is a formalized agreement sealed with a sacrifice's blood because of the solemnity of the promise. What you're saying with the blood in a covenant, and technically, the, literally in Hebrew, the words for make a covenant are cut a covenant. You get the idea of what's going on when you make a covenant. Somebody gets cut. Because what you're saying is, I promise this, and if I break it, do that to me. On pain of death. I promise. God makes covenant with blood, and then a covenant is over a cup. You eat a, a, a meal together to show we are in union when we make this covenant, when we come together and, and say, yes, there's fellowship there. This is the cup of the new covenant. When God brought them out of Egypt, he brought them into covenant relationship with him. That's Mount Sinai. That's the Mosaic covenant. And it happened. But all throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the Old Covenant scriptures, he was predicting another one coming. A new and better covenant. New and better for several reasons. It's permanence. It would last it would not be built on temporary things or made in temporary places. It would last. And it would be new and better because of its power. It would have power to actually affect and change the inside of people, not just proclaim to the outside. It would reach in and its people would be made different. There's a new power there. But supremely, the best benefit of the new and better covenant is the one mentioned here, the one that Jesus is getting at, presence. Intimate presence. In the old covenant, there is simultaneously a come near, but not too close. Come near, come near to the temple. Come into the inner courts of the temple. Come, come, to, the, come to the outer court, come to the inner court of the temple, but don't come in, don't come in, 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 because you can't. But in the new and better covenant, there isn't any last line of defense. There is instead an open curtain, an open door. Come, 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 come. Sit, feast with me, face to face, rejoice. That's the best benefit of the new and better covenant. Full access to God, citizenship in the kingdom of Shalom, adoption into his family, a seat at his table in his house forever and ever and ever and ever. God. Men and women, so often, what consumes our lives, what consumes our minds, what consumes our, our attention, our time? The things of this world, many of which are glorious, wonderful good gifts from God, but they are intended to point us to the ultimate good gift and to show us the character of God. God, the happy, joyful, wise, strong, good, generous, merciful, gracious, intimate, friendly, righteous, holy, God of love. God, the one and the only maker of heaven and earth and of you, Father, Son, and Spirit, holy, holy, holy. Dear 
companion to you. Dear, near, intimate companion to you. For this reason, God gave his only son that you might have him in fullness forever to the praise of his glorious grace. Are you hidden in the blood of the lamb? You must be. Not just to avoid wrath, but to find life, to find joy, to find that which you have been hoping for and chasing after all your life, to find God. You cannot have him otherwise. This is the one you need and it's the one you want. You need to be in the blood of the Lamb. You can be if you will turn to him in simple, whole life, trusting faith. There is a Lamb and there is blood. He was slain. And you have heard of him in his death and you see your need for him, do you? Do you see your need? You see your need for him. If and as you see your sin and see his coming wrath and see the emptiness of your life and the need for this God, you understand all this and you hear, cast your hope on Christ in faith if and as you hear. Christian, you do hear. You do hope in him. All because of the gracious resolve and determination for God to be merciful to you. What a God. What a Savior. He is who you need and with Him you have all. Christian, if you're not a Christian, Become one right now, and then this is true of you. You have a life that's meant to cast all of the rest of your life's circumstances in proper light. The assumption of the Christian life, we could refer back to last week, the first half of last week's passage, the assumption of the Christian life is that it's going to be hard. All the same troubles that everybody else on earth faces will be ours, and more. Because the world and our flesh and the, the spiritual realm is against Christ and constantly seeking to destroy him and all who walk with him. The assumption of the Christian life is that it's going to be hard. And this that Jesus lays in front of his people that he is eager to tell them about is meant to travel with you through the trouble. Hand in hand. Today I'll take a handful of trouble and I'll hold up next to it my handful of hope. That is not a, a Pollyanna hope that, oh, you know, those things they aren't, they aren't actually that bad. And is not a, a hope that these things will go away. It's a hope that stands above these things and says to them, I know how to look at you. I know how to see the disease. I know how to see the unemployment. I know how to see the, the marital relational discord. I know how to see kids in the hallway that hate me, people that make fun of me. I know how to see disease and death and hurricanes and, and persecution. I know how to see all that. I see it in one hand and I take in the other hand the bread and the cup and I remember what has been done to deliver me from bondage and to deliver me to God. And so I can look at all of these light and momentary afflictions and not be a lunatic for calling them that. Paul's not a lunatic doesn't mean for you to be a lunatic or to play some mind game with yourself, but to look at it in light of, hand next to hand. I can call all these, and I can look at them, and I can say, light and momentary affliction. That is achieving for me when I look at this in faith and walk into it holding on to Christ. That is achieving for me an eternal glory that will far outweigh them all. 
as I fix my eyes on what is not seen, but what is unseen. And God, kindly to help us, has made it seen just a little bit in bread and cup. Now, somebody asked, and I thought about, should we celebrate communion this week, just change it? And I thought, no, we shouldn't. Because we're going to have a chance in two weeks to celebrate. And then we'll have a chance to talk about this again. But until then, see it. This is, this, is, this is hope for you, Christian. And really, you are shortchanging yourself. You're robbing yourself. If you don't do the work at keeping this truth front and center, but instead take the uh, easy way out and just let the world tell you what is. I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones that first said this, that we, one of our greatest problems is that we don't talk to ourselves enough, we just listen. We listen to the world, we listen to our own hearts, we listen to the spiritual forces of evil that are all around us, tell us what is. We listen, we listen, we take it in, and we instead need to say, no, in fact, this is what is. Another way that might be put is to take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. You shortchange yourself if you do not do that work. You don't take your thoughts captive. Just let them run, run wild in your mind and tell you what is. You shortchange yourself because you write your own prescription for misery. You write your own prescription. Be hopeless today. Fail. Live beneath the world rather than as a conqueror of it. This is grounds for rejoicing and it is ground for hope and it is ground for robust living. I am not only talking about, and Jesus does not mean for us to be a people who just perpetually live like, like fingernails holding on for dear life. More than conquerors does not mean conquerors in all the ways the world might define it, but it means that we can live robust lives with an ability to sacrifice, an ability to take risk, an ability to strive, an ability to endure, to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus for you. You can live with a heart that's healed, Afflicted in the past? Sure, of course. In this world there will be much tribulation and it's not going to stop. Afflicted in the future then? Yep. But a heart that's healed amidst affliction. If you will tell yourself, rather than just listen to the affliction telling you what life is, if you will tell yourself, no, no, this is the truth. This is who I am. This is what Christ has done for me. He has provided himself so that the wrath, the anger of God passes over. The smile of God always rests upon me. His blessing is everlasting and sure for me. And home is coming. Tell yourself that. It's the path to a healed heart and robust living. It's the path to hope and joy. It makes for a strong people. Strong in the grace of God, not strong in our own strength, strong in the grace of God. And it commends to a world all around that doesn't have this. Look, here's the real God, here is a Savior. Here's the one you need God Himself, who gave a sacrifice, who gave a lamb, poured out His blood that his wrath might pass over us and that he might grab us and take us home into the presence of his joy forever. That's what is coming to you, Christian. Tell it to yourself every day until your soul says, I think I believe that. And the Spirit of God press it into you. Let me pray. God, help us. We are to stay awake praying that you give strength to us to escape from all that's coming and to stand before you. We need your help.
to not be led astray, to not be crushed and beaten down, but while beaten down and while pressed upon heavily to yet stand and shine. So God help us, please. God speak to your people the truth and give them strength to preach to themselves the truth by your spirit to stand. You are good. You are good. You are good. Thank you for giving a lamb. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for life. We love you. We trust you. You are good. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.